I want to take a moment before the show to let all of you know about a new horror anthology that I just read and really enjoyed. The book is called Shredded, and uh, that title is a double entendre because this is a collection of body horror stories about sports and fitness. So double meaning of shredded there. Now, the stories are awesome. Uh, These include pieces about a murdery yoga cult, also why you really shouldn't use performance-enhancing drugs, and also why you definitely should wear a helmet. I really hope that someday we'll have an opportunity to cover at least one of the stories in Shredded over on Elder Sign someday, but until then, I hope that you'll grab a copy for yourself. I've put a link in the show notes to make that easy for you, but of course you can also order the book from your local bookshop. Again, the book is called Shredded, and I hope you grab a copy today. Welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we are talking about the story In the Drownings, post-AD 43 by Alan Moore. This story is chapter three of the novel Voice of the Fire, which tells the story of Northampton, England, over the course of 6,000 years. But it tells that story as really a series of loosely connected novellas and short stories. And this book, Voice of the Fire, was originally published in 1996. And of course, we have done the first two chapters of this already. This is a chapter that is part of an ongoing series that's been commissioned by one of our really awesome Patreon supporters. This is probably the only way that I'd have the opportunity to read this book, which I'm really glad for. So thank you so much to our uh, very generous supporter who has commissioned these episodes and gotten us reading this uh, really fun and strange and uh, distinctive novel. Yeah, I think like like most people, you and I, Brandon, have known Alan Moore as someone who does comics and then as someone who created comic book characters or wrote comic books that have then been turned into blockbuster films such as The Watchmen and V for Vendetta. I, I didn't even know this novel existed actually before it was brought to our attention by our listener through this series of commissions. And I've really, really been enjoying it. I mean, it feels like it's written you know, specifically for me, actually. So <laughs> I, I, I felt a little ashamed at not having known about it, but I'm so grateful to our, our listener and supporter for not only bringing it to our attention, but for making it possible for us to do this. Uh, and Speaking of making it possible for us to read something written by Alan Moore, our Patreon supporters en masse have made it possible for Brent and I, Brent is my co-host on our Neil Gaiman podcast, Hanging Out with the Dream King, Uh, our Patreon supporters have made it possible for Brent and I to be doing a bonus series over there on Patreon about the first volume of Alan Moore's run on Swamp Thing. Uh, Brent and I are deep into that. We are in the middle of that right now. So I'm, I'm having kind of a summer of Alan Moore right now. And it's, uh, it's absolutely awesome. Yeah, that does sound really awesome. I wish I were having an Alan Moore summer, but uh, <laughs> I don't know what my summer is. New child summer, right. I think it's called. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's actually a pretty good time for Alan Moore. And you and I are going to get to do some more Alan Moore together. But yeah, you're not doing 10 comic book issues the way that uh, that Brent and I are. But before I start turning this podcast into me talking about another podcast I do with somebody else, let's uh, let's get into the recap, Brandon. Take it away. The plating of the rushes and the cutting of the stilts, a hollow beak that spits darts, its making and its use. 
These are the words and phrases that regularly reverberate through our unnamed narrator's mind as he leaves his wife and children who are playing in the shallow water to go hunting. The narrator is concerned that one time, one of these times he goes hunting, he'll look back toward his family and they won't be there anymore. And that's because something like that has happened once before. He went hunting in the drownings. He was annoyed that his wife hadn't fixed the drawstrings on his boots. He kissed his daughter goodbye. His son was already out playing somewhere. He passed the Han man who may have wanted to say something to him as he left town. And that was all of it. On his way back, he didn't hear the typical sounds of the village. And we'll learn more about this event, though not a lot about it as the story continues. Uh, But that was his first family who went missing. Um, But just to set the table a little more completely here in this intro, I'll say, as Glenn pointed out at the top of the show, that the year is 43 AD, and we are still in Northampton, as Glenn also pointed out, near that same hill where the other two stories we've read in this novel have taken place. Yeah, yeah. I think the the title of the story says post AD 43, right? So explicitly saying that we're not actually in the year 43, we're, we're after it. And precisely when is actually, I think, something of a, a question. It's something we will think about in the discussion. But yeah, we are obviously in the same location as these other two stories have been. More pertinently, I, I, I found this opening really moving. We get two different scenes in which our narrator leaves his family to go to work, which is a pretty mundane thing, but both of these scenes really got to me. The first one captures this kind of beautiful sadness that I feel when I leave for work most days. It's this sort of sadness that uh, definitely had me crying about butterflies in a parking lot the first time that I had to go to work after Finch was born. And I found that really moving. But then we also get the stresses of household management, right? This, there's this need to leave for work and then counting on some element of what it takes to, to do that, some element of what it takes to leave the house in some kind of order. You count on some of that having been taken care of by your partner, only to discover that it hasn't been taken care of. And now you're running late and it's super stressful, right? This is the sort of morning when, you know, you just kind of need some time alone in your car, listening to a podcast or some music while you drive to work that you need, you need some alone time, right? And all of this, of course, as well, is just, I think, an excellent narrative tease because we now want to know what her horrifically tragic, twisted Alan Moore thing happened to this first family. So this is, I think, a, a real emotional roller coaster of an opening here. It really is. And and you're so right to point out the way that Alan Moore captures that melancholy of leaving the house and leaving your family behind and just kind of looking back where there's that kind of mixed sigh of relief and sadness, you know, that you get time alone, you get to listen to a podcast or an album or even NPR or the radio, just something that's that's yours for a few minutes. But then that's just time between work and uh, and home. And yeah, the, you, you just know that this morning also, if it was a, a businessman of today, you know, his briefcase would have been locked by his kids overnight and one of them would have thrown up on his shirt and, <laughs> you know, and but then it's just the worst morning. But then to imagine coming home and your family's not there would just be the, the biggest, the biggest tragedy and uh, more captures that very well. Yeah, I just don't actually put on my my 
work shirt and, and my tie until after I'm, I, I get to campus. That's I get dressed in the parking lot, essentially, because I know that there's a, a, a 50% chance that hugging Finch goodbye is going to leave me covered in pudding or, you know, it could be anything, really. Who knows what some of it is? Well, before we move on, I do also want to call attention to just a, a gorgeous sentence that Moore has written here. I'm just going to read this and we can chew on it a little bit. Off to the west, down where the Riversiders had their settlement, thin ropes of smoke were strung between still sky and distant fires. And when I'd come too low upon the hill to hear the village noises at my back, there was a silence stretched across the world onto the further trees. And this description here, this just paints such a vivid picture in my imagination. I, I adore this sentence, but I do think it it works too, right? It Because it's, it's building this world for us in some really meaningful ways. It tells us about other human settlements, but it does equally show us that complete isolation is possible in this world. And both of these things are going to come back in, in the plot. They're going to come back and matter. So this is just, you know, it's a beautiful description, paints the picture, gives us a, a sense of the mood of the story, but also gives us information that we're going to need without us realizing that it's doing that. It's awesome. The way this story is written, I think, appeals most to my taste as a reader of the three we, that we've read so far. And there's other passages here. I think I, I have one I picked out that I'm going to read uh, as we continue along here. That I just think more in this story is capturing stuff that resonate with me in a way that the past two stories, you know, apart, you know, the plotting was great and the uh, world building was great, but they didn't resonate in the same way that elements of this story really resonated with me. Well, you've anticipated one of the discussion questions that I think we're going to have from this point on, Brandon, as we work our way through this novel, now that we will, or at least at the end of this, we will have three under our belt, will be to do a little bit of comparing and contrasting, because it's clear that Moore is writing each of these stories a little bit differently. So they are going to... Uh, they are going to connect with us in different ways, emotionally, intellectually, in different ways than each other. And and also, I think it's fun for, from uh, both the perspective of a writer and a reader to have the these stories in this narrative uh, working a little bit differently, be told in different styles and so on. So we'll, 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 we'll be picking some favorites as we go as well. All right. Well, let's return to the narrative here. Our narrator is back in the present or the, you know, the mundane tasks that he's doing on his normal day, the day the story is taking place. So our narrator is out hunting or fishing again in the drownings, maybe doing a little bit of both. This is a place that not many people go. First of all, horses don't like the swampy, boggy ground, but the midge flies are also a real bother. So the narrator has gone to his favorite hunting spot. He's isolated. I think you did a really good job of, of emphasizing that, Glenn. And um, the narrator gathers sticks and rushes, and then he gets dressed in his hunting costume, which is a green gown that is described as being somewhere between a ghillie suit and a bird costume. <laughs> he uh, straps on his stilts. He makes sure his fake beak can blow darts, and then he gets to work hiding in plain sight. It's not long before uh, Bass comes along, and the narrator lets it go about its business while he, the narrator, thinks about the ducks. He thinks about how one, such as himself, a higher kind, can disguise himself and go through the drowning, uh, plucking up ducks and fish, leaving them to wonder what has happened to their kin. And here I'll quote from the text. There may be beasts, 
more subtle yet than we, strolling amongst us at their leisure, picking, choosing, bagging now a woman, now a man, and none shall ever know where they have gone. So sparse and scattered are the crimes, so few and far between, save when these subtle monsters feel the need to feast and glut themselves. So this is the passage I wanted to read. I love this passage. And uh, this is a real fear of mine. (laughs) And it's the first time (laughs) I've seen something like this, something that is so close to just a, a, a totally irrational fear of mine in print. And it spoke to me. Anyway, you know, there's some narrative closure here. The narrator catches a fish with his spear. Yeah, I I loved this paragraph as well. I also had it marked out to read. I think it's it's beautiful writing, but I also just really like having the narrator think about how there might be some type of predator that is above humans on the food chain, but that whatever this is, they're so good at hiding that we just don't know it. And you know, this is kind of what vampire stories are, I suppose, right? I mean, and the Predator have, films, I think. <laughs> yes, also, right. The Predator. <laughs> I mean, the Predator is a kind of science fiction vampire in some sense, right? I mean, at least if you're thinking about the, the kind of the hunter amongst us sort of thing. And I guess we get werewolf stories that are like that as well. In general, that is a genre of weird fiction that we have. I don't think we've done a single story like that on the network, have we? No, I don't think so. What 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 frightens me most about this sort of thing is when you think of higher as also being bigger, you know, there be there being things that are not just subtler in terms of stillness and uh, movement that can move among us and gather us without us knowing or noticing, um, but also the idea that there might be things that are so much larger than us that we can't see them. And these are just things that I'm terrified of. And every time I think about them, I break out in sweats. And I just <laughs> I just love that Moore has captured that here. Well, I also love the description of this hunting costume. I mean, it's it's awesome. I'm, I'm pretty sure that it's the inspiration for the village. Uh, at least yeah. that was the image I, I just could not get out of my head while reading and, and actually had to really resist the urge to go watch that movie again this week and, and had to resist it, not because I think that's a bad movie, though I think most people do, but I've, I had to resist it because already even without having seen that movie since it was in theaters, my impulse as a parent is to, well, go somehow and do the exact plot of that movie. I don't need to see that movie. It was going to, it's going to make me an insufferable partner, I think. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think, I think we're both pretty inclined to, uh, building costumes to solve our life's problems. So, you know, this, this guy's right in our wheelhouse <laughs> as a narrator. Yeah. I mean, I think that's where you were talking about this story emotionally connecting with you more than the other two have. It's this one's, this is the one that's kind of like a mirror for us. All right. Well, the narrator has been hunting for at least two days. And by all accounts, he's been very successful. His bag is full of fish and he's singing some old hunting songs. So all in all, things are going well. And now it's lunchtime. And the narrator is eating his fish raw, which is a bit of a local custom, I think, in the drownings. He says everyone else eats their fish like this. But soon he sees some red flags moving towards him from a distance. And as they get closer, as the flags get closer, the narrator sees that these aren't flags at all. They're capes. And so what the narrator is seeing is a a Roman squadron, probably, that's traveling through the area. 
The Romans, the narrator has heard, have claimed the land. And this confuses the narrator. Land, he thinks, cannot be taken, nor can it belong to anyone. So because the narrator has no quarrel with the Romans, really, he calls out to them. He yells out hello, except that his voice is ragged from lack of use, and he's camouflaged as a giant bird. And everything about this situation, including what we've already learned about the drownings, you know, the midge flies and the the boggy ground, is pretty disquieting to the Romans' horses in particular. Um, and I and I think it's important that the narrator here is emphasizing the the horse's response. So the horses start to run away and the Romans then have to chase after them. And that's that. The narrator thinks that he'll probably have accidentally started some kind of rumor about a giant bird living in the bog. Yeah, we're going to talk about that in the discussion. But you, you left out a detail here, Brandon. It's a, a detail that well, it really confused me and then also took over several hours of my life this week. And <laughs> I'm just going to read the line here and then try to make sense of it. So here's what, what Moore writes. One of them bears a staff crowned with a strange device of gold. There is a snake, a fat man standing, then a mouth wide open with the tongue lolled out. And I'm not quite sure what's going on with this staff. I mean, it's a a Roman army standard, which is a a long staff that will have several different insignia on it. Uh, I think the context makes it clear that that's the sort of thing that Moore has in mind here. The snake probably really means a dragon, which signifies that this is a cavalry unit. And hey, as you pointed out, there's emphasis on horses here. So that makes some sense. Roman army standards then also will have an image of the emperor, or at least an emperor. Sometimes it's you know not the currently reigning emperor, but the emperor who uh, established the unit or something like that. But this is usually just a face. It's you know not a full body depiction. So the fat man standing is not going to be the emperor. Uh, but then also we do get you know this image of a, a mouth wide open with the tongue lolled out. But I don't know of any army standard that showed an emperor with his tongue out. So I have no idea what this is. Uh, presumably, it's something that Moore has seen in a museum, uh, but I, I just couldn't find it. And if uh, a listener knows what it is, I would be grateful to to learn about it. I, I did a little poking around on this story just because I was a little confounded by this story on a number of levels, <laughs> ultimately, as we'll see at the end. you know. Um, and then it's hard to contextualize what could this story really could be doing in a function in its function as part of a novel you know that kind of stymied me a little bit this week and so i will spoil something for you here glenn maybe not spoil but on one website i scanned for about 5 seconds someone suggested that this was the letters spqr and that the narrator doesn't recognize them as letters Ah, okay. I guess yes. I I could buy that. I'm I'm skeptical of that of that reading, and we'll perhaps talk about that uh, in the discussion. But but okay, I, I'm on board with that. Perhaps. <laughs> yeah, it's not presented to us in that way, and it is a you know this is a, a thing about making strange. But I don't know even what function um, having the Romans show up here it does for the story. And so, like, I'm really that I'm I'm excited to talk about all this in the discussion because. As much as I love this story and it resonated with me on so many levels, it's still pretty confounding. But before we get to the discussion, there's, there's, there's a little bit more we have to cover here. 
The narrator takes us back to the past, and uh, we see that he's reflecting upon the events that led him to live in the drownings. And those events really amount to um, the death of his family. The narrator is thinking specifically about his wife, Salka, but not his current wife, though. That's her name also. His first wife was also named Salka. And from the time they were children, the narrator always knew that he and Salka were meant to be together. In any event, the narrator comes back from the day of hunting, excited that Salka might cook up the fattest fish for him and his family. He was really excited to see his son, who he didn't get to say goodbye to that morning. But by the time the narrator got halfway up the hill on his return from this hunting trip, he realized that something was wrong. He couldn't hear any of the usual village noise. He thought he could hear dogs barking, um, but maybe he's confused, experiencing a little uh, synesthesia here, and thinking now that he might have only smelled the dogs and imagined their barking. He passed by the Garnsmith's Forge and saw a giant scorch mark in the middle of the shop. And then he passed by the antlers that had been worn by the hob man earlier, but they were just on the ground, abandoned. And there were no people anywhere, but everything looks as if the villagers had just gotten up and left in the middle of what they were doing. For instance, in front of his own hut, the narrator sees evidence of a game that his son was playing with the toys that he had made for his son. And the narrator is still not certain of what's going on. And, and so he thinks he'll have to lightly scold his son for leaving his toys out where he can step on them. This is the, you know, uh, post 43 AD equivalent of stepping on Legos, I think <laughs> Alan Moore is narrating here. And then the narrator enters his hut, his home, and he's relieved to see that his daughter is there. But no, it's not her. It's just a bundle of furs on her bed. No one is home. No one is anywhere. So the narrator leaves his hut and he eats one of the toys he made for his son. Uh, it's a man carved from a pebble and he starts to weep. And this scene was not okay. It, it was just not okay. I think Moore here has, has tapped into my, well, my nightmares really. And he's rendered them into gut-wrenching prose. I I wanted to not read any more of this story at this point, though it's a great story that has a really uh, compelling ending. This just was so visceral. I, it, it really, really affected me. It's brutal. You can't imagine. I, I don't think you can even imagine something like this, really. I mean, it's just so impossible to confront as if you ever have to confront this as a reality. And more really captures that. And it... And it it goes into how he's crafted this narrator's voice as well. And uh, I, I, yeah, it's just so well done. We're almost at the end of the story here. So let's, let's wrap it up. These memories of loss, which the narrator is thinking about in the present as he's finishing his lunch, cause the narrator to flee back to his current family. But he's not done remembering the disappearance of his last family and his neighbors and the whole village that he lives in. So we get a little bit more about the past here. He, the narrator, stayed near his son's toys all night in the empty village. He can't make sense of what's happened. There's 
really no sign of anything having gone amiss, except for the fact that no one is there and there's a big scorch mark on the forge's ground. And then he runs, realizing finally the enormity of the situation that he's in. He runs to the next village to ask them if they know what possibly could have happened. And now he appears to them to be just a a raving lunatic. And so he's kicked out of the next village for being insane. And the only place left for him is in the drownings. But it's not all that bad. He's found a new family, another Salka. And he's not alone, nor is he maddened anymore with bewilderment and grief. And now, after his days of hunting, he's back to his home in the drownings. He sees his family and he lengthens his stride so that he can get to them sooner. And Salka lifts up her head as she sees him coming. And the little ones are looking at him too as he rushes and splashes towards them. He lifts his arms so it looks like in his bird costume he might be about to take flight. He begins to speak to tell his family that he loves them and that he'll never leave them. But his voice startles them as it did the Romans. And so his family spreads their wings and they fly into the darkening sky. And that's the end of the story. Yeah, this story ends with the revelation that the narrator's family we met at the beginning is, in fact, a group of birds. And and just what a heartbreaking story that is. I mean, this person has lost his family, his whole community, and now he just lives in the swamp and pretends that some birds are his family and and, and maybe even really believes that they are. It's uh, It's gut-wrenching. It is. He hasn't moved past, actually, that bewilderment and grief, and he's not become sane again. He tends to his needs and lives in a bird costume among a bird family, and it's presented so tragically and with all this hope that this character has and the the love he has for his family. And yet at the end, we realize they're just ducks or something. And I guess he solved his life problems with a costume. Yeah, which of course is something Alan Moore has written quite a bit about. I had not thought to approach this story as a superhero origin story, though Perhaps perhaps it is, and I guess we will take that up in the discussion in some sense. But I'm actually going to start the discussion uh, really the same way that I've done for the previous two stories in Voice of the Fire, just by orienting us in time. The date on this story is post-43 AD. Uh, that year is the beginning of the Roman conquest of Britain. And hey, yeah, we've got Roman soldiers here. The Roman conquest of Britain is generally regarded as a a long process. It's regarded usually as a 40-year process that comes to an end in the year 87, though this whole conquest was, of course, really just the conquest of what is today England and Wales, but we do call it the conquest of Britain. And of course, the far southern part of Britain was conquered, subjugated, and pacified a good 20 years earlier than that. And in fact, the area around Northampton, right where this story is set, this was under Roman control before the year 50. But then there was an uprising led by the famous Boudicca that happened in the early 60s. Uh, the Romans crushed this uprising mercilessly. This is a story that uh, everyone uh, learns as a kid in the UK, of course. 
But given that our narrator is curious and confused about Romans, I I guess I suspect that Alan Moore has in mind that this story is taking place in the 40s when this Roman presence is new. But there are some nuances here that I think Moore gets wrong that I want to quibble with a little bit. For one, although the Roman conquest as a, a proper noun, you know, with a capital R and a capital C, that begins in the year 43. Uh, but Britain had actually been a part of the Roman Empire for almost a century at that point. Uh, back in 55 and 54 BC, Julius Caesar had campaigned in southern Britain and, and, and really established southern Britain as a series of client kingdoms that paid tribute to Rome. In fact, they paid a very high tribute. And so villages like the one that we have here in this story, they would have been paying some kind of tax to their state that would then have been making its way to Rome. And the villagers would have known all about that. They would have known what was going on here, what these taxes were for. But more seems to have the idea of, of Romans and, and really, I think, just people across the sea at all as a kind of strange notion for our narrator, which just would not have been the case. The narrator would not have been this confused about this. And I do think that we have found generally that Alan Moore has really struggled with presentism in these stories. He's been writing prehistoric characters and prehistoric societies as clever, but also as ultimately stupid and ignorant. And I'm really curious, actually, to see if that changes as we get into the late antique and medieval periods in the next set of stories. And I will say that there has been much less of this presentism as the stories have continued. So, you know, the further away that we get from modernity, the deeper in the past we are, the more of this presentism we see from Moore. But I do want to point out also one more place in the story where Moore clearly thinks of prehistoric people, but really pre-writing people, right? Uh as doofuses who would think that, I don't know, cars are demons or something like that if they travel to our <laughs> time. And this is a passage on page 111 in which the narrator does not understand the concept of property or understand the concepts of state and government. But this was already a world of private property. It was already a world of central governments long before the Romans arrived. Uh, this part of Britain had coinage. It had taxes, had several kingdoms that were frequently at war with each other, uh, at war with each other over who controlled and taxed which communities. This is also a society that, yes, was pre-writing, but it wasn't necessarily pre-literate. So this is where I was skeptical of that explanation that you offered up, Brandon, about SPQR being what it is that this narrator has seen. I'm not skeptical that that's what Moore meant. I'm skeptical that that's how any person in Britain would interpret those symbols, because this person would have understood the concept of letters and understood the concept of of symbols that are not uh, depictions necessarily. But to, to, to bring all of these thoughts to a conclusion, I think also interestingly, and this really is where I'm going to kick us into the discussion, I, I also find it interesting that this third story in the volume is the one that is actually at least interested in the world of the story, right? We see far, far less of this narrator society than we did in the previous two stories. And, and you even, Brandon, raised the question of why set this story during the Roman conquest at, at, at all? So what do you think is going on here with that? I have no idea. I'm really glad you you provided that historical context because 
I struggled to find any meaningful differences between the 2500 BC story and this one in terms of village life. Their villages were closer together, maybe. Uh, maybe there were, was more of a population, a sense that there's a bigger population in the world in, in Northampton. But the, the Hobman doesn't really play a role in this story at all. Uh, so there's really no sense of uh, local religion or a regional religion or even a state religion or even a like spiritual religion. There's not really an investigation into the technologies of this time. The houses are still called huts. Um, yeah, people don't like midge flies and maybe wouldn't travel through the bog. Like, Lord knows I've sunk into a bog knee deep on hiking trips, and I don't want to go there either and live among ducks. But yeah, I, I was really confused about if he's even trying to communicate as part of the project of this book. The change in historical time uh, in terms of its progress towards the present. Um, so maybe not even a fully Hegelian sense that we're moving towards some golden age and each age is better than the last. Each time period, however we want to periodize it, is better than the last one because we're moving towards a golden age. But just saying technology's changed and these people's lot had these quality of life improvements and there's more agriculture. This is a, a story of a hunter gatherer um, who's uh, living his life as a duck. So I, I just really don't quite understand Moore's choices here, even though this was my favorite of the three stories. <laughs> Right. The the first two stories have been about these moments of really big transformation in the lives of uh, of individual people, but also then the lives of societies in in Britain with the the advent of of agriculture, the beginnings of civilization, our our transformations, uh, you know, in and out of the the Mesolithic world, and then we're getting uh, metallurgy and and so on, and th that seemed like that was what the scheme was here, right? That Alan Moore is going to show us, he's uh, going to give us these weird fiction stories that take place at these moments of really important transformation, social transformation in the history of Britain, which that's cool. That's that's a, that's definitely a scheme that I'm on board for. And part of where that looks like that's what Moore is going to do is that the next story is set here when the Romans are coming, which is definitely a moment of profound transformation. It's an extraordinarily significant moment in the history of people living on the island of Britain, for sure. But yet then we don't actually get very much of that in this story. That's not really the angle in that Alan Moore is looking at here. You know, I had expected that we were going to see, I, well, frankly, I thought probably our protagonist would actually be Romans in some, in some way. That was kind of my, my guess about what this story was going to be. But, I, but yeah, also, as you're pointing out, Brandon, this society here, the depiction of it actually feels less materially sophisticated to me than the story in the, or the, the the community in the second story did. And that's very strange. There's no sense here that this is actually a society with, you know, like really good metallurgy or that it's, it's really kind of present in this community, though there is metal, there is a mention of the forge and so on. It's as if Moore wrote the first two stories really thinking about material culture and then just wasn't concerned about that at all. And it was kind of a jarring change. It really is. I mean, we get the metal shop here, the reference to Garn, uh, who we saw in the last chapter. 
there's hints at things, but the fact that something would still be called a, a garnsmith or something like that after, oh, I don't know, what, 1,500 years plus um, is, is, is a mystery to me. And that this village's traditions would last that long. I mean, we you know we lived in a t- we lived during a time of rapid technological change and advancement. But even a thousand years in the prehistoric or pre-writing past, as you said, Glenn, that would there would be so many changes and uh, cultural shifts and things like that. New names for things, language shifts uh, that more just doesn't seem to be engaging with. And, you know, I wonder then about this village, about this man. Is this story just meant to give us this close perspective of uh, a person who maybe, as we saw in the first story, has a lower intelligence level, low ability to analyze the world he's living in? He lives kind of in a low resolution um, encounter with the world. Or is he? Oh, has he always been insane? You know, has he ever had a family? Uh, there's just these raises these questions uh, about the subjectivity of the narrator, make me question whether or not he even knows about the world he's living in. And then I wonder, okay, why are the Romans here? Why this bit of the Romans uh, being present? Are we supposed to see? civilization in this way, a Roman sophisticated civilization as being that subtle monster that cap picks people up and removes them. You know, Glenn, this is a question I have for you as a historian. Were Romans getting slaves from Britain in this way? Would they have raided a village to to capture the people? And the narrator just isn't intelligent enough to put two and two together. Well, that's that's literally the next question I was going to ask you. Is <laughs> I'm, unequ- I'm not equipped to answer it. So <laughs> well, I, I do have you. an answer. I mean, they, they, yeah, but the question I was going to ask you is where did the villagers go? And yes, the answer is uh, in boats uh, to France or Gaul <laughs> and, and uh, they're going to be slaves. Uh, that's definitely what has happened here, that this was a, a slave raid. And I, you know, I think what Moore's envisioning here is some of the particulars of the conquest that were really about the tribute that Rome was exacting, wanting more of it. It's all a little complex. There really wasn't anything the Britons could have done to forestall the conquest because like uh, so many wars, the actual genesis of this invasion was rooted in uh, internal Roman politics more than it was located in international relations. Nonetheless, the Romans uh, had made some demands on the Britons. Those demands weren't then being met. And so uh, stealing people, enslaving them is uh, part of what's happening here to, to you know get the things that you've asked for. Also, this is simply what's in it for Roman soldiers and Roman officers is getting to take prisoners. They get to sell these people into slavery and keep a percentage of that money for themselves. Some of it then has to go to the state. Some of the people have to go to the state as slaves as well. There are a lot of rules about how this works, but but definitely that's what's going on here. But I'm, I'm going to circle this back, Brandon, just because I have a few more thoughts even just about the way that Moore is structuring his writing here in the prehistory and thinking about you know why set this story at this moment, the gap between the first story and the second story is 1,500 years. We go from 4,000 BC to 2,500 BC. And then we get this gap from 2,500 BC to 43 AD. So it's a 2,500-year 
gap and some change. It's the biggest jump that we're going to make at all in this story. In fact, you know, if we made that big of a jump again from this story, the next story would actually be like farther in the future than Star Trek is to to think about that as a point of comparison here. And so in between, Alan Moore has skipped some things that I might have included <laughs> as, you know, thinking of like big moments of transformation for Britain. The biggest one of all would be the arrival of the Celts, whose culture is still felt on the island of Britain, particularly in Wales, where people speak a Celtic language, which is to say Welsh. And a lot of the place names, of course, in uh, around the island are, are Celtic place names and so on. That's a big, big moment in the history of the peoples who have lived on this island. The Celts also are a really fascinating interest of people who write weird fiction, people like Robert E. Howard and H.P. Lovecraft, for example, that I'm surprised that Moore skipped the opportunity to do that. But Moore also has skipped the entire megalithic culture, like the people who built Stonehenge don't show up in this story or this book at all. And I, I'm quite surprised that he's he's jumped ahead that much. And then to to get straight to the Roman conquest, but then to not really tell us a story that is that requires the Roman conquest, right? Because this tragedy that has happened to the narrator, I mean, it is specifically that the Roman army has enslaved his village, but it could have been something else. This could have just been a fire or something. That's exactly right. And and also there are, you know, other questions raised here, like, were there no other hunters out that day? Why was he hunting alone um, or fishing alone? You know, where's the sense of community and locality that would have been a major feature of this village's life. Um, why doesn't he understand to like go after the Romans? You know, what his mindset, and I think it is Moore's presentism here, but this character's mindset is so incurious and he he's he's so isolated from his community maybe even while he's living in it and that sense of alienation is really something that you don't see in literature at least maybe it's something a universal feeling but like we didn't really write about this until modernity. So like, or modernism, I should say, like post-World War II, alienation, uh, maybe maybe even uh, post the Industrial Revolution. But yeah, I'm just really curious about Moore's approach and and just reading history backwards and, and, and putting these really modern perspectives on being in a place and time onto these characters that would have had a really distinct attitude about where they live and the people around them and things that we can only imagine today because we live in such a different society. I'll sum this all up, I guess, Brandon, to, to move us into the next part of the discussion by saying, of course, I've, I've had my grumpy you know, history professor pants on here, uh, which is how we have started every discussion for every story in this book. But I have actually <laughs> profoundly enjoyed every story in this book, and and I'm just loving this book com- completely, yeah. really, as a whole. And part of what I'm loving about it is that it lets me do this sort of, of nitpicking here. But this story in particular, I think, threw me for a loop simply because it called into question you know my assumption about what the whole scheme was and what it is that Moore is up to on a you know a structural level with the whole book. So we'll just have to keep that in mind as we go on. We will make some predictions uh, at the the end of the discussion. But before we get there, uh, now that we have have talked about where the villagers have went, there's kind of another plot question that I think we should take up, which is simply 
is there anything supernatural going on in this story? When I first read this story, I really hoped that there was, but there are no textual clues that I could find that anything supernatural is going on when I reread the story, other than that beautiful, uh, terrifying passage about the the subtle monsters that are higher than us. And, and I do think, you know, Moore is interested in mysticism in that sense. It, it, and I don't, I haven't read any of his views on, um, you know, witchcraft or you know, his spiritual practices that deeply. But I would suspect that these abstract forces like civilization would appeal to Moore's more mystical side as being a kind of subtle monster. And I think that that's what he's trying to get across here. Uh, but nothing supernatural, maybe. Or maybe you can think of those things as being supernatural. Certainly, in a philosophical sense, how does an abstract idea um, act in a material world? And it's it's through acolytes of the idea in some in some regard um and you can i guess pick that apart on so many different levels you know you can go to a bookstore and look at history that looks at you know forces big forces as ideas and not as you know the individual soldier who who uh is acting on behalf of those ideas but yeah we don't think of those things as supernatural i wonder if more does a little bit so what I was wondering is if it's not actually the protagonist here, the narrator, who is in fact the supernatural element in this story. Not not that actually he himself is supernatural. I'm I'm not arguing that he himself is a ghost or something like that. I think he's very genuinely a solid flesh and blood person who has suffered a horrible tragedy and now just dresses up as a bird all the time. And that's really what I'm getting at, right, is that the reaction by the Romans to seeing him in this costume and speaking at them is the type of reaction you might have to encountering a a swamp monster of of some sort, right? (laughs) And so then I started wondering, well, in the folklore of Northamptonshire, is there some kind of bird man who lives in the swamps? Like, is that like a local thing, like a kind of Jersey devil or something like that? Uh, Chupacabra, you know, so, you know, kind of cryptid thing that uh, there might be in Northamptonshire folklore, even just, you know, the Midlands, uh, more broadly speaking. I did not do anything near exhaustive research on this, by which I mean, I looked around on the internet a little bit, but did not, uh, I did not get any actual books on the folklore of Northamptonshire or the Midlands, though there are such books. I just didn't have time for them to uh, get to me this week. So I don't know the answer to that. I wondered if you encountered anything about that, Brandon. I'm, I'm shocked you didn't go to uh, you know the Internet Archive and try to pull up some old uh, some old GeoCity sites on on cryptids in North Hampshire. <laughs> oh no, I did. That, That's the, that is back. what I did, and I didn't oh, okay, find a bird okay. person. That's what I'm saying. So yeah. you know, is there a bird person in the bog? Just ask Google that question and, and see what comes up. But. Uh, Right. Well, if we have any listeners in Northampton or who just know things about English folklore and can shed some light on this, I would love to to hear about it because to me that felt like what the whole gimmick of this story is, right? I mean, one thing probably we should say we have said in the previous installments of this series that Alan Moore is from Northampton, right? This is his hometown. And it felt to me like that was kind of the gimmick of this story of there is actually some kind of lore about a bird person who lives in the drownings lives in the the local bog or marsh or something like that and hey this would be a fun story about what what are the origins of that of that legend because that does kind of seem to be 
uh, something that Moore is doing more broadly in these stories. And, and in fact, let's let's actually check in on the developments from the first two stories, right? Because Moore is tr- introducing elements in each story, but then also pulling them into the next one and kind of ch- and charting the persistence, actually, of cultural developments through time. So what are some of those developments that you've seen here, Brandon? You already mentioned that we get the reference to the Hobman from the first story. We get Garnsmith's Forge from the, the second story. Was there anything else that you noticed? Uh, there's the ghost boy who shows up uh, in this story as a kind of myth of the area, a local legend. Uh, and the narrator claims to have seen that character. That's, that's probably a reference to um, Hobbes Hogg. And that that kind of event that, as we saw in the second story, put an end to child sacrifice uh, to some degree. And that was it, I think. That, those were the big, big ones, the big three ones that that I saw. You know, metalwork, metallurgy is continuing on. Um, big focus on, you know, water here in the in, in the way it's used in these villages. And yeah, just kind of the the set apartness of always one community from the other, and the the the, the maybe development of the Hobman as being now a figure of a natural religion to some degree, wearing antlers, more more animal traits. But yeah, I, I don't know what what did you see? Well, yeah, the 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 Hob fields being haunted by this murdered boy was the other thing that I had seen. I what I didn't catch was any presence of orcs or black dogs and doesn't sound like you found them either just the just the reference to the narrator having thought he heard dogs barking uh when the he realized the village was abandoned there were no village noises but he could hear dogs barking that could have been the you know the bar guest or whatever the the, the black dogs we've been seeing um throughout the story but it, it also could just be the fact that you know there were dogs in the village and they were probably taken too or their smell remained and the narrator experienced, uh, you know, some synesthesia as a result of shock. Yeah, but there wasn't anything explicit. They weren't really, you know, this wasn't pointed out to us in any, any really, you know, this wasn't emphasized for us in any particular way, which we had seen so far in the first two stories. So perhaps that's the end of orcs and black dogs, or possibly they'll return, but we'll, we'll, we'll continue to keep, you know, our eye on that as we get into the next stories. Yeah, and, and just just to kind of put a cap on the bird person of the bog business, I I, I almost didn't need it uh, to be a real thing, which is part of the reason why I didn't go looking for it, because of the way we're talking about how more is charting some of the way this local for- folklore develops. I'm more interested in the presence of this you know, giant bird as a cryptid and seeing where it shows up later in the novel than I was kind of seeing if more was pulling on some real uh, folklore traditions in Northampton. Yeah, you've you've made me the molder on this episode and you're the scully. That's, that's a real role <laughs> reversal for us. <laughs> yeah, I think it is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got one last question on, on this topic too for you, Brandon. It's really just the same question, except that I want to ask you about fire. What is more doing with the fire motif that we have had so prominently in the first two stories? And, and of course, which also you know supplies the title of the book, is there didn't seem to be as much fire this time. Just the, the emphasis of the scorch mark in the forge. So this, this kind of absence of fire or the snuffing out of fire as part of this, um, you know, slave raid that the Romans have done, which I guess is... I don't know what the metaphor is with that. 
I'm sure there is one, and uh, I, I'm reaching for it in my mind, but I'm not really grasping anything. Yeah, same here. So I think all in all, this this story felt like a real departure, actually, from the first two stories. And maybe we'll get that every, you know, so these, and maybe what will happen is we will find that some of these stories are grouped up with some of the motifs and images that they're playing with. Some of the way that Moore is engaging with his setting will change from time to time. He might even have a scheme for that that will become clear to us as we get deeper into the book. But I think for me, these first three stories, I would group them together because these are the stories about prehistoric or really pre-writing Britain. And and so I think this is maybe a good moment to pause here and just compare and contrast those three stories with a real simple question, which is just of these three stories, these three stories about prehistoric Britain, which did you like the most? Which was your favorite? It's this one. It's this one. And it's it's primarily because um you know, even though I'm I'm saying that, you know, we didn't start writing about people living as ducks, you know, in that sense of alienation until maybe the 19th century or something like that. Um, I do love that as a motif uh, in, in, in literature, that kind of alienation, that feeling of being alienated from civilization um, is something I, I, I love in stories. But then also uh, more did something, as I pointed out earlier, that I've not seen before, which is capture this this real sense of fear I have about there being things that are either so much bigger than us or higher than us. I mean, it's part of why I love cosmic horror, right? That uh, we can't see, but still move among us. And I, and I, that passage just, that's one that's going to stick with me. It's so beautifully put. And I just like the story. I, I really liked this story as a story. Yeah, I did too. This certainly was the one that connected with me emotionally the most. I mean, just the, the heartbreak of this tragedy. I, I I just, I mean, it was, this was tough for me to read. As I said, I, I almost had to to put it down, uh, even though there were only two pages left in the story and I was invested and wanted to know what was going on, that it was just so brutal to read. So it, it, it definitely e- evoked a, an intense emotional response in me, which is certainly one of the things that we go to art for. And I think it's brilliantly done on that level, a real masterpiece. But I actually think my favorite probably was the second story, the cremation field set in 2500 BC. That's got, you know, the kind of the, the hard boiled story with about the con artist and there's some <laughs> murder and thievery. That's always a thing that I'm going to love. It also had a lot of really excellent world building there. And depicting the Neolithic Revolution almost like it's the Industrial Revolution, that's something we talked about in those episodes. I thought that was a brilliant move that, uh, despite my my quibbles with Moore's presentism, I think that was actually a brilliant move that made that world come alive and seem and and seem less presentist actually than uh, it might have otherwise. And I also just really appreciated in that story how many and how excellent they were of the just landscape descriptions, descriptions of that world, and including the the descriptions of the ash destroying the protagonist's uh, hometown and uh, what the village and you know what becomes Northampton looks like. I just really really enjoyed the the descriptive writing in that story as well. Well, I think we've fully exposed our private tastes uh, <laughs> in, in reading to our audience by this point. If they haven't, uh, you know, people listening along haven't already determined what they are. Yeah, probably I should stop letting us answer these questions and should just <laughs> turn it into a drinking game for people and just, you know, right. I don't know, we'll post the answers somewhere else online and you can see if you were right or not. <laughs> see how well <laughs> listeners know us after, I don't know, we've done almost 500 podcast episodes together. 
Well, before we leave this story behind, Brandon, I, I want to uh, make a few predictions. I think this is kind of a fun thing that we get to do with this book. Predictions that we had for this story after we finished up the cremation fields were that uh, we, we expected that Romans were going to bring their religion here and that something horrifying was going to ensue. And you specifically said, Brandon, that you assumed that somebody was going to get burned by a river. And uh, none of those things happened. We were totally wrong. But uh, that's not going to stop us from trying to predict what's going on or what will happen in the next story, which is called The Head of Diocletian. And the date is after the year AD 290. So Brandon, what is your prediction for that story? What, just broadly speaking, is that story going to be about? I hope we get to see some thanes and lords develop. I think that time period is probably wrong for that in in England, but uh, I want more to be working with that. That's my favorite time period in British history, kind of pre-Alfred and the unification of of, uh, Britain. I have no predictions other than that. And it's a bad prediction. I can't I can't even imagine what it would be. Yeah, it's a terrible <laughs> prediction. You are several centuries too early for that. And uh, in fact, uh, Alan Moore is going to skip over that period entirely, which is definitely going to be a discussion point, probably two stories hence. But yeah, so Diocletian is a Roman emperor. Uh, he dies in 312, though he retires from being the emperor in 305. His reign is from 284 to 305. So this is during the reign of Diocletian. So, you know, it says post here, but I think it probably is going to mean during his reign. Uh, so it's not going to be the actual head of Diocletian, which is still on his body and and definitely in the Balkans and not in Britain, <laughs> you know, during his reign. Uh, so probably this is going to have something to do with a statue or a, a bust of the emperor. Uh, you know, what's going to happen with that? I don't know. Maybe it will come alive and chase people around a park. I feel like we've read a William Hope mm. Hodgson story with I something want, I similar. I want Alan Moore's version of that story, but with uh, Roman state religion in, in, in uh, Northampton, a Celtic Northampton or something. Like that. Uh, yeah, that's what I want too. I don't know if that's what we'll get, but you know what? If we it's not what we get, we can go write that story, or one of our listeners <laughs> yes. can, and uh, that would be that would be awesome. But all right, now that we have given listeners a uh, probably another pretty bad prediction to uh, to check us on, <laughs> uh, let's close this episode out. I'm Glenn McDorman, and I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects as always at claytemplemedia.com. Let me just take a moment here to thank our very generous supporter for this commission. This story's been a blast to read. We both loved it, and I think it was even more fun to talk about. Uh, and, and as we've uh, demonstrated, I like angst. Glenn likes descriptions of the landscape. That's always going to do it for us, and I think this book has it all. So thank you so much for continuing to support us and giving us the chance to read this novel. Yes, thank you so much for commissioning this episode and and all the episodes in this series. This has been super awesome to do. And if, along with Brandon, you like stories about swamps that also feature a lot of uh, existential angst and brooding, uh, Brent Helt and I are covering the first volume of Alan Moore's Swamp Thing over on Patreon, so people can go (laughs) check that out if they would like more swamp monster stuff from Alan Moore. We are going to be back here on Elder Sign with the next chapter of Voice of the Fire in about a month, though in between, in fact, literally tomorrow, we will be back with The Thing in the Weeds by William Hope Hodgson. Probably not a story <laughs> about a statue, but this is one of uh, Hodgson's uh, Sargasso Sea stories that I'm very, very excited about. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>